Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, maybe one that influenced their own work in some weird way. And today, I'm real excited to have writer and showrunner Alexandra Cunningham with me. Hi. I'm very psyched to be here. Can we call you Alex? Sure. We're going to call Alexandra Alex for the rest of the show, just so you guys know it's not two different people. So uh, for those who are less familiar with Alex's works, please let me give you a quick rundown on her life. Alex began her career as a playwright, studying at Johns Hopkins and Columbia before earning a fellowship at the Juilliard School. She was living and writing in New York City when she got a call from Stephen Bochco, who was working on a new kind of cop drama called NYPD Blue. Alexandra had never written a TV script before, so she turned in an 85-page episode, which is one of my favorite things when I read about you. I was like, I love this, because that's exactly what I would have done. I had no idea. Right? Eventually, of course, Alexandra learned to ro- the ropes of television um, because she then began producing scripts for NYPD Blue, then moving on to write and executive produce on shows such as Pasadena, Rome, Desperate Housewives, Deception, Bates Motel, Aquarius, and Chance. And uh, she was also the creator of the American adaptation of Prime Suspect, starring Maria Bello. Now, Alex has moved to Bravo with her show Dirty John as creator, showrunner, and executive producer. The series is based on the hit LA Times podcast of the same name and tells the story of a woman played by Connie Britton who falls in love with her Prince Charming, played by Eric Bana, only to find that he may not be what he seems. Deception and fraud threaten to rip a family apart as more and more is revealed about this mysterious man. Um, So, Alex... The movie that you picked today, it's a lovely um, analog to Dirty John, I a think. A little bit, yeah. And a little bit yeah. of some of your other works, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll kind of get into some of that, why you chose this movie. But if you could give me a little bit of rundown about why you chose John Stahl's Lever to Heaven. Mm. Well, okay. Where should I start? Uh, yeah, I where? Was, where? <laughs> I was one of those kids who wasn't allowed to watch television. Um, which is kind of funny to me, just so given ironic. what I ended up doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, except I was allowed to watch Masterpiece Theater, so because yeah. that, that that was literary, I guess. So you know, at the age of five, I'm watching I Claudius, which actually probably explains a lot about what I ended up doing <laughs> because I don't know that that's suitable for children at all. If people remember I Claudius. It was. Uh, the sets were extremely cheesy and the production values were like $5, but the actors were amazing. And it was a incredibly homicidal soap about the Caesars. And so <laughs> that was kind of – that was the only television I was allowed to watch except for good, good, when – yeah, but when classic movies came on, public television, because mm-hmm. I might not be young – so you kind of had to wait for certain things to come on television. My father was a big movie fan and would tell me about Jimmy Cagney movies and Robert Mitchum movies and Rita Hayworth was his all-time celebrity crush. Mm-hmm. And But you really had to wait for those movies to come on television because for the most part you couldn't go to Blockbuster or rent them, anything like that. And he had told me, among other things, I mean like White Heat was his favorite. So when that finally came on PBS, it was like the most exciting moment yeah. of my childhood to actually 
actually watch, you know, Jimmy Cagney screaming about his ma. And but <laughs> Leave Her to Heaven was one that he had kind of mentioned and said, you know, there was this woman in it and you know, she does all these terrible things and she's this beautiful actress and but and so it kind of took on this um quality in my head of like, when am I ever gonna get to see this movie? I actually read the book first. Mm-hmm. Which is very different. I mean, it's plot-wise, it's the same, but the point of view is completely different. And and so then when I finally saw the movie, it was and it, she was like a female villain that was the equivalent of Richard Woodmark pushing the little old lady in the wheelchair down the stairs. You know, for a woman that it was that kind of role that yeah. she lets her her husband's brother drown and does all these other insane <laughs> things like I it, it had taken on this mythic status in my head by the time I actually saw it and I I just loved everything about it I was it preconditioned to it? To, it it really did because you know if somebody tells you Jean Tierney is beautiful like objectively beautiful and then you see her She's objectively beautiful I mean I remember reading somewhere that she was so beautiful that actually when they put movie makeup on her it made her less beautiful yeah and that it was in a contract of hers that once she reached a certain like level of success that she no longer was going to wear makeup on camera that she had she could flex her power to the extent that she said i don't actually want to wear stage makeup anymore because it makes me look bad yeah (laughs) which i wish makeup made me look i know right yeah and so you know and and in terms of here's a femme fatale who's actually like a monster she isn't just she's not doing it for money she's not you know she's not mary astor she's there's something wrong with her yeah she's a a monster of love in a way Mm -hmm. like yeah the movie totally lives up to that like the things that she does uh in pursuit of being the only person in harlan's life are that just everything about it i just thought it was really fantastic well so for those of you guys who haven't seen lever to heaven today's episode is obviously going to give you some spoilers but you know <laughs> i think i already did so you know, it's, no it's, it's always you know it shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch my motto is that it's not what happens but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching still yeah. if uh you would like to pause this episode and watch lever to heaven please do so and now that you're back let's introduce lever to heaven Written by Joe Swirling and directed by John M. Stahl for release in 1945, Leave Her to Heaven stars Jean Tierney as Ellen Barrent, a forceful but charming woman who meets a successful pop author named Richard Harlan on a train to the Southwest. Richard ends up joining Ellen and her family at their vacation home. Ellen has been insisting Richard looks just like her father, which becomes pretty awkward when Richard finds out that they're actually there to spread Ellen's father's ashes. Uh, Richard quickly falls in love with this dynamic woman, and before he knows what's happening, she's called off her engagement with a young lawyer, played by a young Vincent Price, yep. uh, and Ellen and Richard are now engaged. Everyone in Ellen's family seems to say something along the lines of, Ellen always gets what she wants, like this ominous, <laughs> you're like, what? But Richard doesn't read into it. Soon they visit Richard's brother, Danny, who's in a wheelchair from polio. Ellen is kind to him at first, but her disdain for Danny grows when the boy comes to live with them. Danny takes up too much of her husband's time. On an afternoon outing on the lake, Ellen lets Danny drown and watches coldly from a boat. (laughs) Does she ever. Woo! To cheer up Richard after his brother's death, Ellen becomes pregnant. But she detests that it makes her look less flattering and that her pregnancy causes Richard to spend more time with Ellen's adopted sister, Ruth. Ellen then stages an accident to induce an abortion. 
While Ellen bounces back happier than ever, Richard is distraught. Ellen finally reveals that she let Danny drown and Richard wants nothing to do with her. Ellen thinks it's because Richard is actually secretly going to meet with Ruth in Mexico. To get back at them, Ellen then poisons herself and on her deathbed asks to be cremated. This sets up Richard and Ruth as murderers because Ellen's had already written a letter to her lawyer ex, planting the seed that the two of them wanted her dead. So Richard ends up taking the fall for Ruth and goes to prison for two years, only de- only to be reunited with Ruth, whom he now admits he loves. It's a uh, it's epic. It's epic. It's mm-hmm. so dramatic. Um, we're going to get into the details of some of those sentences because you can't seem to cover them with just she watches coldly from a boat. I mean. Um, but that's that's the gist. Yep. Um, and I first off have to ask, you know, like, let's maybe discuss what a quote unquote women's picture is. Right. Um, you know, because this movie is directed by Stahl and that's what this was kind of billed as when it came out. So maybe we should get into that history. Uh, Samuel Goldwyn. Arguably the king of prestige women's pictures. But, you know, all that term really means is that, okay, what, a movie stars a woman. Right. And it concerns stories uh, about maybe women's ambitions. Right. Women's uh, feelings. Mm-hmm. So it's just a female character, but it's a women's picture. Right. <laughs> we don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, and based on a hugely best-selling novel, too. Which, yes. You know, yeah. That's a big one. Because, mm-hmm. like, the kind of, like, literary adaptation is a, is a huge thing. Um, and... I don't think that a lot of people were expecting it to be quite this because it was built as a women's picture. Right. And then it's just like, oh, this is a different kind of women's right. picture. This right. is not what I thought. Well, and one of the things I kind of love about it, and I, I I understand from an adaptation standpoint why they did it, but it it really changes the nature of it in a fantastic way. In the book, it's told from Harlan's point of view. Yeah. And – in the movie, it's her point of view most of the time. Like you're alone with her for a lot of her decision making mm-hmm. um, and and watching, like, for instance, when she changes her clothes to her most flattering negligee and robe and, you know, mules with feathers on them and then rips the hole in the carpet at the top of the stairs and wedges her slipper into it and gauges how far down she's going to fall and has already put on the perfect lipstick and yeah. all that to fall down the stairs. Like, we're, you know, we're the, watching her think on exactly. screen. And it's like in the – and I know – um Somewhere I picked this up that they really in the movie did not want to leave the impression that she was doing it because of what it was going to do to her body and her looks. But you still get that impression from the scene that happens right before it. You still get it. Everyone. So I, I love the the stories behind that, that there were uh, letters sent between the producers mm. and the censors nonstop trying right. to figure out, you know, what was going to be acceptable or what right. was going to be okay. And right. and even, you know, um like the the actor who played um Danny uh Hickman. Yeah. Um, you know, he's like, We all knew it was abortion. No, <laughs> we all for knew sure. it was because she like didn't like how she looked yeah. and yeah. And But it still also fits into so sort of the overall arc of her saying to him I'm never going to let you go. It's only you and me. It's, you know, I'm going to remove all obstacles to us being alone together forever. 
it, it does sort of fit into that kind of character arc also. It's like if we have a baby, you're going to pay more attention to the baby, mm-hmm. just like you pay more attention to your brother, to my sister, to, you know, your manservant that you grew up with, to all these people she's trying to get out of Harlan's life. So on that level, it worked for people who did not understand mm-hmm. the other thread of I don't want it to make me ugly, Yeah, which is still there. It's still there to pick up on, but they definitely walked that kind of razor's edge of no one wanted them to do that, so they pretended they weren't doing it, but yeah. it's still in there. It's still... so, And that's one of the things that I think that you get by changing the point of view from yeah. the novel, right? Because you, you understand a little bit more about this monstrous character, and she is... Totally. You know, I, I have a great deal of sympathy for her, even when she's doing terrible things. Oh, totally. And I think about that in terms of also Dirty John, because Dirty John has, um, like, the podcast is very focused on um, Deborah's that, uh, uh, the... Yes. Uh, the uh, Sorry, the female character's yeah. lead who gets kind of conned. Yeah. Um, and so Dirty John, the like the show, is a little bit more, you can seek, you know, some more of his perspective. Mm-hmm. And it feels like even if you kind of hate him, right. you still understand something. Right, yeah. And the, but that's it, a tightrope. I mean, how, how do you do that? You know, I mean, it's probably, I'm not going to say more difficult for us, but because John Meehan was a real person mm-hmm. um, who obviously could not be spoken to for the podcast because yeah. Uh, he, yeah. uh, that, that, but there is anecdotal evidence. There's hundreds of pages of police reports and restraining orders and interviews. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's people to talk to who were in his life who um, will tell you about their experiences with him that you can kind of make a picture of a man, can't necessarily make a picture of his motivations. Mm-hmm. But to a certain extent, I didn't care about those. Yeah. I, I only I, I wanted to explore more sort of the effect he had on people that he chose to destroy rather than to try to explain why that might have happened. And leave her to heaven, they don't really explain it either, maybe because they can't, that it's she formed an unhealthy attachment to her father when she was very young. Yeah. They right? don't even, I mean, the book, they talk about that a little bit more. Um, in the movie, they just don't even, you know, they just say he would, she was super close to him and she was devastated by his death. And yeah, the it's first really thing she says to him is, you look like my father. Exactly. But that's it. Yeah. You know, which I love because it's just, then you're going to be in her head. She doesn't spend all day thinking about why am I this way? No, I so, think that's a yeah. really good point. I mean, there's it is somewhat useless. It's just I, I enjoy a, a TV show or a movie that just says, no, this is the way it is. Yeah. And then that's the accepted right. paradigm for whatever comes after. Right. Yeah, because a lot of people love their fathers and they don't then watch the polio victim brother of their husband drown, which, you know, in in the book, he's watching them in the lake through binoculars and sees her not react when the brother goes under the water. In the movie, you're in the boat with her. Yeah. And even though it's in glorious technicolor, which, you know, is another thing that's kind of amazing to me because I know a lot of movies in the 40s that was like an active choice. Yes. We're going to do this in color. Yeah. And that there was sort of this opinion that black and white dignified narrative in a way that color didn't. And so to make this color, especially when it was based on a book, was a very bold choice because it was 
going to be seen by a lot of people to detract from the story that was being told. But to me, it's actually uh, enhances it. I mean, not to me. I think it's, you know, just sort of a fact when you watch it that these monstrous acts being committed in this like world of saturated beauty kind of throws them into even more relief than it would in black and white. They almost might get lost in black and white because you're expecting people to be arch and evil in black and Mm -hmm. white, especially in anything that touches on noir. Yeah, I mean, like this was a thing we need to, you know, remind people that this was extremely strange to be in Technicolor. Like noirs were not done with this kind of vibrancy or in daylight or without a um, a kind of, you know, gumshoe detective or anything like that. So this Mm -hmm. is a this is a like a femme fatale also that has never been seen before. And uh, it I. The reception to this movie, despite it getting, I think, nine Academy Award nominations by critics was still very mixed because it was like some people either got what they were doing and that it was different. And other people were like, what the hell? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Although I think, like, didn't the one Oscar it win was for cinematography, which is, like, a comment in and of itself? Yeah, Leon Shamroy won for mm-hmm, that, you know? Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh. <laughs> um, so I, I do want to mention also that Stahl is uh, – the director is often lumped in with Douglas Sirk, who is a, a right. very – Douglas Sirk remade a couple of his movies, Yeah, right? he made three of them um, from Universal in the 1950s. Uh, and so – the thing is that you can compare those two. It's it's a testament to, you know, what a director can bring to a project because you've got um, – or and also their, their crew too. Um, Cirque's movies – I'm a big Cirque fan. Yeah. But they are very clearly melodrama. Totally. And there's kind of the hysterics of acting. Whereas Stahl's movie and this one in particular is extremely restrained. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So – it's definitely an artistic choice to have a kind of more naturalistic arrival at this psychosis. Well, and also the things she's doing are so big. Like, they'd, they'd be big even in a movie now. Yes. So, like, to try to add melodrama to things that are already so huge, like the I'm going to throw – the pregnant woman's going to throw herself down the stairs. She's going to poison herself with arsenic. Like, you know, already the moment when she dies and she won't let go of his hand <laughs> after she dies and he's Fuck. trying to slip his hand out of her hand is like, yeah, I mean, that's melodrama anyway. But, yeah. like, it's great because the movie hasn't really been played in that way up yeah. until that point. It's a yeah, moment that could have gone another way. She's uh, tyranny is so stoic yeah. in a lot of these scenes. And it's one of those things where there's like there's almost like a northeastern coldness to this movie. And I, I always think of something like like the ice storm, like yeah. in contemporary things. Set in where, my hometown. Oh yay, yay! <laughs> <laughs> But you you understand like you get the coldness. Though. I totally do. And New England, man. So there's a, <laughs> and it's a weird thing because this is like it's supposedly mostly set in Maine. Yeah, Bar Harbor, Bar Harbor. Um, and so there is you know the stoicism makes sense, and there's something that's like unsaid in most of these scenes. I always think about the scene where uh, Chill Wills is playing the guitar, and they're all singing in yeah. the living room, and Jean Tierney's Ellen is just like stomping around the living room. <laughs> She's so that they're all having a good time. Yeah, she, but she's not saying anything, and none of the people who are having fun are saying everything, anything, but it's just eyes. Yep. It's just like yep. everyone's communicating without communicating. Yep. 
I, I, I love it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to get back into, you know, the, the communicating without communicating a little bit. But then we're also going to move on to some of the uh, Daryl Hickman stories from the DVD oh, yeah. commentary. Okay, one quick break. This is Rachel McElroy. Hello, this is Griffin McElroy. And this is wonderful. It's a podcast that we do as uh, we ma- we are married. And how's the ad going so far? Because I think it's going very good. <laughs> we talk about things we like every week on Wednesdays. One time Rachel talked about pumpernickel bread. It was so tight. You cannot afford to miss her talking about this sweet brown bread. We also talk about music and poems and, you know, weather. There is one... Weather? <laughs> one time Rachel talked about Baby Beluga, the song, for like 14 minutes. And it just really blew my hair back. So check us out on MaximumFun.org. It's a cool podcast with chill vibes. Amber is the color of our energy, is what all the iTunes reviews say. (laughs) They will now. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Alexandra Cunningham, and we're talking about Lever to Heaven. Yes. Okay, so, you know, we we left off talking a little bit about saying something by saying nothing at all. Can we talk about how that works when you're writing the script? You know, like how to hold back, how to not do that. Right. I want I would love to read the script for Leave Her to Heaven and just see oh God, me too. what that scene in particular with them partying and her just stomping around actually. Yeah. Well, and Reed she does. she has a lot of those in the movie. I think there's a lot of like, you know, looking out the window, watching her husband and her sister like they're coming home from Boston and a suitcase like opens in the wind and they're laughing and trying to collect the papers. And, mm-hmm. you know, and she's just staring down at them like if looks could kill kind yeah. of thing. She has a lot of moments like that. There's probably like I'm thinking in the the exposition of the script, the action is probably just like Ellen stares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen stares angrily. <laughs> you know, but I mean, there there are worse things to look at than Jean Tierney staring enraged no, at fine. someone like, you know, with her red lips that are so red, Ugh. which I always think about how few lipstick colors there were like in the 40s. And, yeah. you know, there was like cherries in the snow and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you didn't look good in that particular shade of red, ah, what did off. you do? You exactly. It was like you either look fantastic or you look <laughs> like a clown because you had no options. Yeah. So, but yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I always tend to write, I, I don't know, the, the older I get, the more scenes I write where people don't necessarily talk mm-hmm. you know when i started out it was like well everything has to be said in words because that's what i do yeah. i people dialogue dialogue it out and uh the 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 more i work with actors which has been for a long time now so i'm 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 getting better at it that and especially if you're in the middle of a season or a series with actors and you you really know what they can do and you know what they can convey because, you know, not not every actor can convey something with a look. Mm-hmm. Some of them have other strengths um, and that's that's not one of them. But, you know, that I, I do tend to write the scene and then see what it looks like when we're actually shooting it. That mm-hmm. it's like, you know, maybe we could do this actually without dialogue. That it's about, you know, the energy when you're shooting. But then the older I get, like I said, the I can I can sit there and be like, you know, maybe we could do this without anybody saying anything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's even an exercise you set for yourself where it's like, could we do this without anyone saying anything? And sometimes you can't. But uh, 
I think all those things come into play. Um, and also it depends on point of view. Yes. Yeah. You know, Dirty John uh, point of view was a big thing for me, especially in, in the writer's room, that I didn't want to be in John's point of view at all yeah. for the first however many episodes, that it was just people experiencing him, mm-hmm. which meant that there were a lot of pitches that I had to reject solely from a point of view perspective, where I'd be like, that would be a great scene. We can't do it. Yeah. Because he'd be alone, and we're not going to be alone with him yet, because mm-hmm. it's not the time to be alone with him. This is not his story. Yeah. It's Deborah's story, or her daughter's story, or his first wife's story, or whatever. So, uh, yeah, so point of view sometimes dictates that where it's like, well, it would be great to be in his point of view right now, but we can't be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it depends on the actor you have. Like sometimes, you know, they can do it. And yeah. Sometimes you're, you're going to give them words to take them over that moment. I think I mean, the and I'm not sure about you, but I, I come from a playwriting background as, as yeah. you do, too. And there is kind of an encouragement to use dialogue. Yeah. Um, and that's one of those things where it's wonderful. It's a great tool. It right. teaches you how to write for characters, but it, it doesn't often tell you how to hold back. Yeah. And, you know, when you're writing for a screen or for, you know, any kind of TV project, there's, you know, such a great control with camera that you don't often have to right. have that dialogue. Right. But um, I always think about in terms of like if I'm watching a movie like Lever to Heaven, it stands out to me because uh, a lot of noirs are very talky. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking about even like, like uh, I rewatched Double Indemnity not that long ago. Yeah. And it's a fantastic film, but yeah. every, every you know, scene starts with suppose I, suppose <laughs> this, you know, and, and it, it's wonderful, but this yeah. is very, very different. Yeah. And I almost feel like there's two, like in something like Double Indemnity or Postman or Mildred Pierre, I mean, I just named three James M. Cain books. Yeah. That there's too, which I totally understand. There's too much respect for the source material. Yeah. Because his dialogue is so amazing and his descriptions are so amazing mm-hmm. and his, you know, that you're going to try to cram as much of that in as possible because you don't want to miss any of it versus maybe there wasn't as much respect for a book like Lever to Heaven. I mean, there was respect, but that it was sort of like, well, there's pages and pages in that book of like descriptions of like what the trees look like from the deck mm. at back of yeah. the moon kind yeah. of thing. So you could you could cut through all that versus James M. Cain like from the very first word. You're like, I want to keep all of this. How yeah. do I keep all of this? Um I mean do you run yeah. into that when you're doing like when you did Dirty John? Because like you've got some really good reporting. Oh yeah like, no the source absolutely material. yeah and it's it, it's been kind of funny because some reactions to it have been you stick too closely to the source material and some reactions have been you didn't stick closely enough to the source material. Mm-hmm. And then some of those reactions have both been in the same reaction, <laughs> which is like, OK, well, I, I made choices and I I like my choices. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you I'm happy with them. You have a t-shirt that says I made choices. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I made my choices. And so, yeah, I mean – there were definitely so many things about the source material that I wanted to keep it. Also, it's a true story, which, you know, there's there's that. There's the be, both the being respectful to the people who actually had this experience and also the legalities of, mm. of if you're going to try to change something, what does that then involve, especially if it brings in people who weren't necessarily 
on board with the whole idea of telling the story in public in the first place, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So, you know, it it I had many complications that you don't necessarily have when you're adapting a novel. Yeah. Um, you know, even though the whole thing had kind of been vetted by the LA Times up front, you know, each adaptation is its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there were definitely things that I wanted to get in there, things that I was not allowed to get in there. I remember um, seeing Angela Kang, who's the showrunner for The Walking Dead, who I know at an event uh, maybe halfway through production. And I was I think we had just had the Television Critics Association um, event for Dirty John where a lot of people were saying, are you going to talk about The Walking Dead on the show? Because it's an element for Deborah's daughter that she's an obsessive fan of The Walking Dead and name checks it constantly on the podcast and mm-hmm. what she learned from the show and anecdotal things from episodes. And I was like, Angela. I'm sure the answer is no. And she was like, yeah, no, this is a corporate thing. This has nothing to do with us. These are different corporate parents. Like, you can't name Walking Dead on your show. And I was like, I know. I just thought maybe because we know each other. We could like, come to some no. kind of no, no. It's not going to happen. So, yeah, the, there's the things I wanted to keep like that that I couldn't keep. Had to figure out a way around it. Um, there are things that obviously I could just lift and put in or put in in a – put descriptors into people's mouths, that kind of thing. But, like, you know, it was such great material that it was easy to be respectful of. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually think maybe sometimes it's easier for people to adapt things that they don't love as much. Um, Sure, yeah. Especially the true story aspect of it aside. But, like, a novel that you actually don't think is that good but has, like, a great plot or an amazing main character or, you know, thematically really draws you to it. I actually think that might be easier, (laughs) frankly. I've adapted a bunch of stuff I really love, and it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I I would absolutely agree. I like that you have legal troubles that as well. <laughs> Lever to Heaven had legal legal troubles. Every every property yeah. trying to fight to get what you can into the story. Um, I want to get into Daryl Hickman, who played the young Danny who drowns. Um, the DVD commentary <laughs> for Lever to Heaven is infamous. Yeah. If you haven't heard it, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of the research that I had is pulled from that. Um, but it was, you know, also included on the Blu-ray later on. And it is legendary because Hickman doesn't seem to like or appreciate the work of anyone on the movie except for cinematographer Leon Shamroy. Yeah, he was he, not a fan of Gene Tierney's performance. Oh, my God. He beats to death the fact that Gene Tierney's performance, which he calls out for... Um, Multiple instances of, quote, indicating, i.e. when she's physically signaling her character has an emotion rather than letting the emotion come from the inside as something, you know, naturally manifested in her face or body. Um, But he's he's he was an acting teacher as well. You know, he went on to, like, produce and do a lot. So he's obviously very focused on it. But apparently Gene Tierney wasn't that nice to him. But anyway, Mm. um I I like that through the commentary he's trying to figure out whether or not Jean Tierney was actually in character <laughs> while she because she was acting very much like her character to him like she was very right. cold and weird right well you know what's interesting to me is um you know one of the reasons that I that Jean Tierney is one of my favorites is because she she went through something very traumatic when she was younger, which is, you know, 1943, she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Agatha Christie wrote a book about this. It's not like it was a secret, but that she was pregnant. She went to the Hollywood canteen and and a lot of military people were there to meet the stars. And a woman came up to her and, you know, shook her hand and they talked. And then her daughter was born severely disabled because she caught German measles that night and she didn't know from who. And then a couple of years later, a woman came up to her at a garden party and said, you know, I came to meet you at the Hollywood canteen. I was a Marine and I was sick and they told me not to leave my bed, but I really wanted to go meet the stars and you were my favorite star and I had German measles and did you happen to get German measles? And Jean Tierney like, couldn't even answer her, didn't bother to tell her what had happened, mm-hmm. that her daughter had been born, you know, profoundly disabled and needed to be institutionalized as a result of somebody who would stay in bed with a massively contagious Listen disease that caused birth defects. Yeah, and that was in 1945 that she found that out. And, you know, I, I, that's what she was going through, whether she knew at the time they were shooting the movie mm-hmm. that she had been given German measles by this woman who wouldn't stay in bed because she wanted to meet celebrities, uh, which, you know, is sounds like something that could happen today, frankly. But, yeah. you know, that at the very least what she was going through was knowing that her child was you know would, would never walk or speak or talk on her own couldn't live on her own you know would would be institutionalized and so you know to the fact that she could work let alone you know mm-hmm. turn in an academy award nominated performance whether he knew that or not when he was doing the DVD commentary is just like, you know, look to your own house, buddy, because your performance not that great, honestly. Yeah. So, you know, maybe maybe <laughs> keep a keep a cork in it because just I, I don't know, like it, it that that it's hilarious DVD commentary. But at the same time, like, you know, knowing that somebody who was already, uh, you know, bipolar and had a very complicated life and was going through that with a child under the age of two while they were making that movie is like, you know, maybe leave her alone. Yeah. It's something, <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where like this, the stuff that he's calling out, the indicating is just like, okay, I understand what you're saying. I understand that like, it might be like, a, you know, something that's more like an obvious acting, but he's also talking, you know, he's talking about like acting styles and he's talking about exactly. her personality. It's, I don't like, find her indicating any more than people did in movies of the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe she's doing it, but they were all doing it to yeah. a certain extent. So like and I being directed was... to do it, probably like we need to know what your thought process yeah. is right now for people who are maybe not completely attuned to the subtleties of body language or whatever. Like, you know, these are meant these are broad audience movies, Like yes. you know, make sure that they know that you're angry right now. You know? Yes. And you know, that's the thing is like this is this is a movie that's trying to do a lot of new things. And so it's throwing a lot of stuff at you. So, yeah, like maybe some of her indicating is a familiarity for the audience. And, yeah. and, and there are times when she's not indicating, too. When she's sitting in the rowboat watching him drown and, you know, almost the in, in a color movie, almost the only color in that scene is the red lipstick. Yeah. And she's just sitting there with the sunglasses on and you can't see her eyes. And she's just still as a statue, just watching him go under and under. There's no indicating there at all. No. Which probably to the audience was like, where's where's the emotion? Like, how I do I know? Like, I can't believe that she's just watching this happen. Like, this is terrifying. And. You know, she just she played that completely convincingly to me. And that's a scene unlike anything probably anyone had ever seen at that point. 
I, I would love to talk about some of the context of this movie yeah. um, because there's a few different things for context. First one is that it's out in 1945. There's a lot of actors that everyone knew like for a few year period that were like drafted into the service. And right. so, you know, not every movie got their first choice actor because sometimes <laughs> they would be overseas. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, you know, if Cornell Wilde, who played uh, Harlan, was the first choice. I ended up actually quite liking him because yeah. he's so bland. Yes. Um yeah, yeah, if he was if he was chewing it up the way Jean Tierney's chewing it up, then it, I don't know that she would stand out the way that she does. Like she kind of needs to be someone that she and he needs to be someone she can project on. Yeah, where it's yeah. So he actually, I thought, like you said, did the job very well. Although you know, the first time you watch the movie, you may kind of be like, "Well, oh, this guy's not great." Yeah, he's just kind of yeah, like a little bit. Boring, mm-hmm. but that it also makes sense because yeah, you're it like, works. yeah, it also endears you to Gene Tierney because you're like, yeah, the rest of these people are fucking boring. Yeah, like you know how lucky you are to have this like incredibly beautiful, exciting, bizarre woman like focus on you to the exclusion of everything else. Oh god, that's oh, so yeah. scary. Yeah, and we also have the context of FDR who died in April of 1945, um, yeah. actually in Warm Springs, yeah, Georgia, where yeah. much of this movie was set. So there was a very polio conscious um, yeah. uh, um, world. Yeah. This, this well, they keep calling is... it infantile. Yeah. Shortly, they don't even say infantile paralysis. They just say infantile. Yeah. Danny like... had infantile. Infantile what? Yeah. But they all knew in 1945. They knew what that meant. Exactly. And and I I really love looking at that kind of context. And I like thinking about you know Dirty John, for instance, being mm-hmm. born into this world where there's just like con men and women trying to like wake up to abuse and control. Right. And you know I think that every every show every movie is a product of its environment, whether yeah. or not, you know, we we know it in retrospect or whether or not, you know, we know it now. Right. And No, I mean Ellen's a very modern woman, for for want of a better way to put it. She's also kind of like a twisted version of like that post war ideal housewife where it's like she just wants to cook and clean for you and she's gonna fire the whole staff so she can do everything herself and like To a psychotic but, fault. Exactly, to a psychotic fault. And in nineteen forty five she asks him to marry her. She kisses him first. She does all the running, basically. Like, he's just reacting to her the entire time. Like, mm-hmm. she, you know. And uh, versus Dirty John, where I feel like the the true Deborah and the, the Deborah of the show are kind of living in a little bit more of a reactive dream of romance. Mm-hmm. Which comes from movies and television, frankly. Like, it comes from this is what you should want, which in turn is conditioned by, you know, your your mother, who mm-hmm. also watched movies and television and was presented with this romantic ideal dream that all women and women yes. should aspire to. And Ellen's got that, too. Both yeah. Ellen and Deborah are living, like, they're, like these these dreams of media telling them what women yeah. should want or what women should be or, or squeezing yeah. them until they're they're just... Nothing, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Ellen's father was some kind of scientist. It's kind of never really clear. It has something to do with He's got natural sciences, in the closet. anthropology. I, don't know. I feel like from the book, there was a lot of taxidermy involved and not really clear, but they would go on these naturalist trips together, just the two of them. And, you know, she she says a lot of the time, like, well, I'm going to 
I'll clean out his office and I can kind of like donate all of his stuff to the various universities because they know me because mm-hmm. I worked with him. You know, that she could have actually probably picked up his mantle and become whatever he was. Yeah. You know, gotten the same education that he got. She knew all the people that her father knew. She could have just had that for a career. But instead, she's going to put on the red lipstick and she's going to fire the maid and the cook and the housekeeper and she's going to live alone with you in your house in the middle of nowhere, Maine, and take care of you and wear these peignoir sets, you know, and mules all the time. And, like, that's what she's going to do. She's going to pour all of her energy into that, Um, you know. And the Deborah Newell of Dirty John is a super successful, self-made multimillionaire with dozens of employees. Mm -hmm. And she has this, you know, empty space inside her that can only be filled by romance, You know, she's got all the trappings of success, and yet there's this romance hole inside her. She's got to fill it, and unfortunately, that's what leaves her open to be a victim of somebody like John Meehan. And where do we get these ideas of romance from? We're not born with them. No, but they're killing us. They're killing us, man. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get into the scene that we already talked about a little bit, but the boat scene. We're going to kind of dissect a little bit more of that, and we're going to talk a a little bit about foreshadowing and, and how to do it right. Yeah. Okay, one quick break. Hey, it's Jana Varney of the JV Club Podcast, and I am so excited to be joining Maximum Fun. If you're not yet familiar with the JV Club, it's a podcast with me and some of my favorite women, and in the summer, men, as we explore the highs and lows of our terrible teenage years into our adult lessons. For example, hear about Allison Bree's humiliating moment at a gymnastics competition, experience the shame of a knocked-out tooth with Jamila Jamil, or drop in as John Hamm imagines what would happen if Bambi met Godzilla. So join me and all my once awkward, often still awkward friends every Thursday by subscribing to the JV Club on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined here today by Alexander Cunningham, and we are talking about Leave Her to Heaven. Okay, so uh, foreshadowing in the story is pretty big. Uh, well, it sometimes feels heavy-handed to the audience. I think uh, Cornell Wilde actually sells that he's taken by surprise again and again. Yes. I do. He's just so good-natured and naive that you want to shake him and be mm-hmm. like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> um, you know, like when Ellen has the swimming contest with the boys and the man says, Ellen always wins. And you're like, oh, that's like such a Stephen King line. <laughs> or when Richard tries to dedicate his book to his mother-in-law who advises him to dedicate every single book exactly. to his wife. Dick, as far as I've read, it's splendid. Oh, well, just for that, I'll dedicate the book to you. And what shall I say? To my sweet, my beautiful, my discerning mother-in-law... Who who advised me to dedicate this book to my wife. I'll dedicate the next one to her. Dedicate them all to her. I feel like every time the mother-in-law speaks, she says something like, you know, you got to watch out for Ellen because she's going to fuck you up. And he's just like, yeah, just like doesn't even take any of that in. Who is that actress? Is that Mary Astor or is that someone else? I can't remember her name. She's wonderful. Really good. Um, But that's these little keys together that Joe Swirling had to do a lot of heavy lifting to set up the infamous murder scene, honestly, um, because he needed to get the audience ready for the fact that she was going to do something real crazy. Right. 
Well, it's, you know, the first night they're all together at the ranch in New Mexico where, you know, he's only discovered a couple hours earlier that they came there to spread the ashes of Ellen's father. And he rides out to watch that in the moonlight. And she's riding around on this horse, just wildly throwing these ashes around in the air. And then there's this kind of amazing moment where she rides off and she kind of flings the urn into the air and it yes. like flies like across the moon. I'm like, what is she doing? Why did she? Just Why did throw she do the urn that? into the bushes? But it's like she's done, right? Yeah. Like that it's like she spread the ashes and now she has a new thing to fixate on. Yeah. Like her, her father's gone, she has this guy, but just flinging the urn into the air was oh like actually a little bit of a chuckle for me. I was like, what? You're like, what? Like and you're, you know, you're watching, you know, cuz this... she knows he's watching, which yes. she doesn't know that at the time, but <laughs> It's just it's a little campy, but it's awesome. It's wonderful. And I it is like a like these weird manner ticks. I'm thinking about like in the first episode of Dirty John, there's like a just a real weird moment with John where you're like, Oh no. <laughs> like you need to listen to all the red flag blaring right. things in your head and and Is this the this mattress is so comfortable moment? Yep. Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going like... to give it away, but there's there's definitely a moment where John yeah. does something and kind of won't leave a room, right? And it's super fucking weird, right? And I just want to know, you know, how do you? Is there a place where you're like, this is too far? Because I'm thinking about like what Swirling had to do, and I'm right. like, you know, how do you? Well, it's funny because we always kind of talked about it, even though it is, um, it's it's an eight episode series and it's airing once a week. On Bravo, but then it'll go to Netflix right after that where people will be able to watch all the episodes in a row, which is not why we did this. But we we did always kind of talk about it like it's an eight hour movie. Mm -hmm. And so that moment, I always kind of wanted to when we finally went into John's point of view, explain what was up with that. Okay, so. It, in a way, it's because it's Deborah's point of view. All she's experiencing is what he's doing in that moment, and she can't understand why suddenly he's changed, for want of a better word. Everything was going so well, and why, you know, has he suddenly dug in on this particular thing, and why is he reacting this way? And that then, when we finally get into his point of view, uh, six episodes down the road, then we discover like why he thought things would go that way and how he had kind of set himself up for it. And then when it didn't work, how angry he was. Yeah. So like fetal position, angry, like, like yeah, like straight it, up. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, in in that sense, it's like because it's being experienced by Deborah one way, it's. It, like it doesn't necessarily apply, I guess, to foreshadowing because this is all she has to work with is what's happening in the moment and her confusion. But yeah. that then it is kind of foreshadowing once we get in his point of view. It's like, are we going to be able to see things we already saw from his perspective? And and we are. Yeah. So so I always kind of planned for that down the road as we were breaking stories. I'd be like, you know, this was a this would be a great moment as it was when I was listening in the podcast and thinking, I wonder what he was doing when his daughter, when Deborah's daughter is asking, what does he do all day? Like where, when he takes your car to run errands, where is he? Yeah. And Deborah says he's running my errands. And it's like, well, it doesn't take 10 hours to go to the dry cleaners and get the Tesla charged. You know, what does he do the rest of the day? And I thought to myself, yeah, I wonder what he did do because I know he didn't have a job. Deborah thought he had a job, but he didn't. So yeah. what was he doing all day? And then... 
hopefully people will also be asking that question because we're going to answer it. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's get into that murder scene. Okay. Uh, um, the blocking of that shot in the boat, I think, is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. You've got Danny in the front facing forward and Ellen behind him where he can't see the slight changes in her face. Yeah. So her voice is saying one thing while her face is saying something very different. And maybe if he could see her, I always thought he might think twice about jumping oh, yeah. in the water because she there's some there's such a coldness to her. Well, and she's coercively controlling him in a way that, you know, is something that John Meehan used to do to people that she says things to him like, you know, you're 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 not swimming real fast. Are we halfway to the point yet? Not yet. You're not making very much progress, Danny. You're not doing a good job. Mm-hmm. You're getting really tired, it looks like. Like, she's putting it in his head. Like, yeah. who knows if she wasn't saying these things. If she was saying, like, look at you. Look at you go. Like, yeah. you're you're amazing. You're, you're swimming even faster than you were before. Like, if he would have made it. But she's trying to put yes. it in his head. Like, you're going to drown. Like, think you could hurry up and do that? <laughs> so. It's, it's. I hadn't really thought about that, but it is just that that negative reinforcement, mm-hmm. and it is it is the coerciveness. Yeah. Are you tired? Because you look tired, and it's you're like, an, do I? <laughs> it's such an interesting thing to write because you have to get into that kind of psychology of that yeah. character. Because I mean, I don't think that's totally natural for. I would hope it's not totally natural for most people, but maybe yeah. it is. You know. Well, and I also would We're think if assholes. it is natural for anyone, it, funnily enough, I, it, it might be more natural for women because we spend a lot more time, I think, observing people um, and the subtleties about people's behavior and, and what they react to and things. So, like, if women really wanted to dedicate themselves to coercively controlling people, which, you know, there's also a violence element to that a lot of the mm-hmm. time that that is not as natural to women. Um, but if you really do just want to manipulate people, which some people do, some women do, um, they're very good at it when when that's their purpose. They're good. Man, we should get on that. I mean, just like seminars to use your are powers. Are we not on it? But yeah, I know. <laughs> Speak for yourself, April. Oh no. <laughs> I I'm I'm thinking about that scene and the ways in which, um, you know, I'm intrigued by a movie that will give the like make the audience privy to things that yeah. the characters aren't. Yeah, and I feel like that's something that you can't do all the time in in a show or a movie. You know, it, it can't just be the audience sees everything because I think that it kind of might uh, desensitize the audience to the shock of that. You know, right. like the the shock of you know that scene is that you weren't totally prepared to see her in that in that manner i mean right. how do you how do you decide what you're going to let the audience see that the characters can't see right well i do feel like to a degree it's also what is the character aware of about themselves because you know especially with villains Villains don't think they're villains. Villains think, you know, they're they're put upon. They're being taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't understand. Everyone's against them. Like, you know, that there's all these kind of complexes that go along with that. So I'm sure to a certain extent for her in that moment, it's it's the 
this is better for everyone. Like I tried to kind of tell the doctor and tell Richard that it would be better for Danny to, you know, stay at the school with his friends and not be here and no one listened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's really not equipped for life. Like, look how difficult it is for him to like the scene that you mentioned when they're all sitting around singing and having coffee and he tries to lighten the mood by doing that kind of acrobatic thing with his crutch that just totally fails. And she's just like, no one sees that Danny's not equipped for life. Yeah. And so maybe this is just better. If he can't cut it, then it's better. Like, she's not thinking, I am cold-bloodedly murdering my uh, brother-in-law. You know, she's she's just kind of going, well, you know, he's he's not equipped. Yeah. If and, he, if he yeah. could swim as fast as exactly. I could swim, then he could survive. Yeah, and it's can. like, and he doesn't listen. Like, he, he no one listens. She gives him yeah. a choice in the boat. She totally does. And, like, he, like he's sealing his own fate by being like, no, I want to be with you guys. And she's like, well... <laughs> I guess I have to do it now. Well, and there's the fantastic scene, which, of course, there's twin beds because there's always twin beds. And uh, which came first, like twin beds in life or twin beds in movies is always like the mm-hmm. thing that I wonder that it's like, did people have twin beds in their bedrooms because people were forced to have them in the movies? And they thought that was like fashionable That's what we're supposed or, to do. you know, and uh, but she wakes up in the morning and she gets into bed with Richard and it like starts to kind of be a little bit of a seduction scene. And then you hear Danny through the wall. Morning, Dick. Hey, good morning, Danny. Morning, Ellen. Hi, Danny. How about a dip in the lake before breakfast? Okay. And he might as well, you know, be right next to them because he basically isn't even shouting. Yeah. He's just like, hey, <laughs> he's like right there. Which I was just like, oh, no. You know, oh, even, no. even if you weren't a person who's like, I'm never going to let you go. You, you know, you're never going to get away from me. Like the idea that like my brother-in-law's voice is going to be right next to my head for the rest of my life is like, even if I was not a monster of obsessive love, I'd be like, this is not going to work. No. You guys, like, what's he it going to take? Go. You got to go. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> I I want to get back before we go. I want to get back to the idea of um, horrific things being shot in broad daylight. Yeah, and and that's again something we can bring into Dirty John too because it's a beautiful scenery. You know, you have this right. woman who's got a great deal of money, and they've got this beautiful house that they're sharing, and you know, it everything is seems very perfect. And you know, this Leave Her to Heaven is kind of the the exaggeration of perfection. You right. know, whether it's the makeup and the lighting or just like the production design is fucking incredible. Amazing. Totally. Everything is gorgeous. And it is so perfect. And so that just seems like that, that tonal friction of, of having something so beautiful and something so terrible next to each other is right. Right. what draws me to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is going to sound strange, but... You know, years and years ago, I worked on a suicide hotline in New York, and uh, every month you had to sign up for a shift where you spent the night in the office. Mm -hmm. It was obviously open 24 hours a day, but, you know, it was New York. And so, you know, in the middle of the night, they would lock you in to the office. I mean, you could, you know, you could get out. It wasn't like it was a fire hazard, but you would be locked in there so no one would sort of like wander in. And it was just the two of you in the middle of the night. And the first time that I was going to do that overnight shift, I was terrified because I was just like, you know, people are going to be calling all night and it's going to be these, you know, terrible, scary middle of the night problems. And like, I, you know, I don't I've I'm going to stay up all night and and I'll, I'll just be crazy with this and yeah. I don't know what it's going to be like. And the whole night no one called. 
And wow. I just ended up playing Jim Jim Rummy with the other person who was managing the the switchboard. And I was like, huh, it's kind of strange. I would have thought, you know, people get like drunk and sad and upset and scared and all the other things at night, but nobody called. And as I was leaving, it was like eight thirty in the morning. I was putting my coat on, and the phones started ringing. And then they were ringing and ringing. And I was just like, why don't – were the phones like off? Like did we accidentally turn <laughs> yeah. the phones off yeah. overnight? And our supervisor said, no, actually what happens is people, you know, they, they manage to go to sleep somehow or they, you know, they're, they're white knuckling it through the night. But it's when they wake up or they have to get up in the morning and realize that they have to face another day. Mm is when they they really get desperate. The idea, like, I have to make it through a day of working with other people or whatever Mm -hmm. they're going to be facing, that's when they really need the most support, strangely, is, you know, first thing in the morning. And I do think that's why um, it's scarier to have things set during the day because, you know, at night you're – you're you're sleeping. It's dark. You're like cloaked in something where you can hide like yeah. that. It actually, you know, the convention of all terrible things happening at night. It's like, yeah, no, when things happen in the dark, it is terrifying. But when terrifying things happen to real people, it's just as likely to be happening when the sun is shining. Yeah. And and so I I actually I like that better to to watch and, and to write is it makes it seem you know, like so quotidian and pedestrian to be having something terrible happen when the sky is blue. Just right out in the open. Yeah, I I think, you know, like when I was watching at least like the first episode of Dirty John and I was just like, oh, the the kind of um, passive violence of just like lies right. and, and family drama that's happening just in the daylight of like people just being cruel to one another. Yeah. That to me seemed so... It put me on edge. Yeah. Like, it makes me feel like, oh, God, I can't believe this is happening. But, right. you know, that is when when that happened. So I'm assuming that, you know, that experience really informed the way that you yeah. that you write and that yeah, you approach yeah. a story. Yeah. The, yes. The, the idea that, that scary things only happen at night is like something for childhood. I think that it's mm-hmm. it's it's maturity that lets you know that the really terrible things happen all day long. <laughs> Alex, that is such a great place for us to leave. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> That's wonderful. So if you can remind people uh, how and where and when they can see Dirty John. You can see Dirty John on Sundays at 10 o'clock on Bravo and I assume on Bravo On Demand. Um, and then uh, in 2019, it'll be on Netflix. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. Melissa M. from Canada says, What a fun and insightful podcast. I love listening to ladies talk about their passions and their art. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Melissa. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group that that's facebook.com slash groups slash Switchblade Sisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.